Hey everybody, what's up? This is Joseph Coyne and welcome to the ACA Podcast. This ASCA podcast is proudly brought to you by Vold, world leaders in human measurement technologies. Vold systems are used by more than 1,500 of the world's most elite sporting teams, high-performance centers, and clinics to accurately measure human movement, performance, and rehabilitation. Vold's product suite includes the Nordboard hamstring testing system, ForceDex dual force plate system, force frame strength testing system, and Airband's wireless BFR cuffs. Also available are the Smart Speed Timing Gate system, for accurate and reliable speed and agility tests, and the Dynamo handheld strength and ROM dynamometer and inclinometer. Vold, for when accuracy matters. Hey guys, welcome back to the ACA podcast. I'm your host, Joseph Coyne, and this is episode 91. Hey, so I want to thank everyone who came out to the conference last month. It was an absolutely smashing event, and there's some wonderful information put out there by all the presenters. If you did miss out on the conference, didn't get to go there, I know the ASA normally puts up all the recordings of the lectures from each year, so make sure you jump on those. One of the presenters, who's actually a keynote presenter from this year's conference, was Martin Boucher, and he is the guest for this episode. Martin's a very passionate strength and conditioning coach that progressively developed into an applied sports performance scientist with a main emphasis on football or soccer. He's got over 200 publications focused on intervention strategies and profiling assessments that may improve players' physical and technical potential using a scientific approach wherever possible. He's got like three master's degrees. He's got a PhD in exercise physiology. He developed different training tools such as the 30-15 intermittent fitness test as well as the 5-5 or 4-3 running test to monitor training status using accelerometers, GPS and heart rate. Currently, Martin consults and speaks for various organizations, holds the position of Head of Performance at Lille Olympic Sporting Club, which is in the French uh, League One, together with the role of Head of Performance Research Equipment Labs and helps lead up the Performance Intelligence Research Initiative. So he's absolutely one of the most interesting guys I've had the pleasure of being around, and I loved having this discussion with him. Some of the things we covered were his sports science setup at Lille and how he monitors players with things like standardized warm-ups. Alongside this, we chatted on building performance on a foundation of athlete health, designing training microcycles during the season, having a volume control on your ego, especially in high-performance sport, and the anaerobic speed reserve. So, like I said, it was a great conversation, absolutely cracking, and I can't wait for you all to get to listen to this, so let's get the show started. All right. We are back online with the ASA podcast. Uh, I have the pleasure to be here with Dr. Martin Boucher. Martin, thanks for coming on, my man. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Really excited to have uh, the chat with you, my friend. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's awesome. It's awesome. Um, long time between uh, chats. Very long time. We are discussing this just before we jumped on. But, um, Martin, I want to ask you, where did it begin for you in this um, world of strength conditioning, sports science? How did you all start? And, uh, and basically take us through to where you are now um, and, and what you're doing now. Um, I think um, like many of us, uh, I'm a failed uh, athlete, you know? So even though when I was like in my 16, 18, uh, always, being to, always willing to understand better how I could improve myself because I knew I, w- I won't make it professional. So I think, as I said, like we are, like all of us, we are those, uh, those typical semi-pros 
that didn't make it professional. So we had to find a way to keep being in the pro world, but not on the athlete side, but more on the on the coaching sports science side. So really got into this conditioning type of uh, of world when I was yeah when I was training myself when I was 18 something like that even even before and then I think everyone went kind of let's say automatically organically from my willingness to understand more about myself so yeah then did my my studies like like uh, like everyone in, the, in this business that was not enough I wanted to do more research to understand better than a PhD why not uh, and then a lot of different roles from from being a lecturer at some stage from being a full-time conditioning coach, from being a full-time applied sports scientist. That was my time in, uh, in, in Aspire. Um, then when I work in, in Paris, Paris Saint-Germain was really more like in a head of performance type of role. So putting finally together the conditioning, the sports science, like leading a bit the department. So that was great. And now I'm more in the role, more consulting type of role. Um, I have one foot in a, in a football club in, in France, Lille, another foot with, uh, with Kitman Lab doing more research, analytics, touching a little bit the machine learning side of the thing. So it's really a bit of a, of a stretch from everything I've been doing that I like. But I think having this opportunity to be both working in a club, in a performance manager type of role, but as well having the chance to develop all those stuff with, with Kitman is great because it really helps me to be a bit, as I said, on both sides of the spectrum. Um, and on the side as, um, as Maybe people know as well. I'm involved with the Paul Orsen in our our company, like Heat Science. When we do courses, we have started the podcast as well, and that kind of kind of puts again everything together. Because as as, as you're in your role, you know, being on the other side of the the mic when you interview people, you just get to you keep this ability to talk with people in the industry and connect uh, the dots as well. So I'm pretty I'm pretty happy with what I'm doing at the moment. But it's been a, a journey a little bit uh, everywhere everywhere in in the world as well. And I'm sure we'll discuss uh, about my 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 connections and all my 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 travel, my trips to Oz, when I met and about all those guys that kind of shaped a little bit how I how what I do and who I am at the moment. So, um, yeah, that Australia played a big role in my development as well, definitely. Yeah, awesome, awesome. And uh, shameless plug here, but uh, Martin and Paul from from Hit Science invited myself to do a a course on speed development, maximal sprinting speed development. So um, if anybody's interested, please check that out. They've got a lot of other sort of wonderful resources there that uh, uh, you can go on and learn all about high intensity interval training, uh, essentially, um, and, and more and more for, for different sports and so forth. Um, mate, tell us a little bit about Kipman Labs. What, what's that as well, just for the listeners? Yeah, so I would say Kitman Lab, the, the, the way the, the guys like to introduce the, the company is like it's more than just an athlete management system, which is the typical platform when people, especially people from a multidisciplinary team can share, aggregate data and so on. So that's that's the platform. I'm not really involved into that. I'm really involved in, in the research and the analytics that the company develops. Uh, and that's why I said that's, that's pretty exciting. So there's something like called now Risk Advisor, which is kind of, a, there's an algorithm in the, the platform that kind of analyze all the data available. and kind of pulls out numbers in the morning about how an athlete may be at risk or not based on the, the, the machine learnings that happen every day based on the information. And of course, like the, 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 the heavy analytics behind that, that's something completely outside of my, almost my understanding, you know, this is heavy, heavy analytics. But I've been really involved in like 
putting this into practice. So how in a club you manage to collect enough data that might be useful enough for the model to get output that we can understand as well. So really put that into, into the practice. So that's been a big focus over the last year, especially with my role in Lille as well, because we have this, this, uh, the, the, the system, this model in, in, in Lille in, at the club. And on the side, more, let's say, classic, um, yeah, I'm involved in a cl more typical classic types of research, having a hypothesis and trying to find out if things uh, work out as we, as we thought. But instead of having um, 25 uh, university students as subject, we just have access to the databases of the clubs that use the system. So like we just published a few, a few, few papers with, uh, with like uh, 600, uh, 600 players in playing in both the Premier League, the Liga, the, the French League, the, all those big leagues. And we kind of aggregate, of course, anonymously, all those data. And then we look at, at the moment, we're looking a lot on stuff around the planning, periodization, content of the microcycle. Uh, exposure to high speed and how that relates to injury during matches for these kind of things and that's pretty cool and again that's the stuff that I really enjoyed and like when I started to work uh, a bit with uh, Aaron Coots for example back 15 years ago you know when he was already trying to get make sense of the data collected in a club in a real life context but trying to use the data that is collected already to try to find the answer to come some of the typical coaches question and these kind of things. And again, that's what we're doing now with Kitman, but just with pretty nice databases in terms of numbers. And, and yeah, that's, that's pretty powerful. So that's the research bit, but of course it's, it's, it's completely, it's, it's more than applied. It's just a question that everyone asks himself in, in a club context. So I'm pretty, pretty, pretty excited with this too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can imagine. It, so it sounds very interesting. As soon as you start getting uh, multiple teams, multiple clubs involved, the, the sort of findings you can get from it become uh, like they go up by a power to one another um, uh, that, I, that I'm sure you can, you can tell us more about. But I'll, I'll, And you'll probably swing back around to this, but I know one of the big uh, sort of interest areas for you uh, now is this optimization of player health and player performance. Um, so I just wanted to touch on that with you um what is this is it, are they uh, competing and contrasting uh things like you can't have exceptional player performance without player health or are they complementary uh to one another and and how do you actually conceptualize these and then how do you go out and measure it i would say it's pretty simple to me uh because health is part of performance so i think you just you just can't even talk about those those visions separately. It's really, it's, it's one. And especially, I would say, when you realize that what really matters, and probably even, I don't say even more, but in like talking about my, my, my sports or football, or, um, but you see a lot of coaches that I would say that there's, when you, sub, when you sub, when you substitute a player, there's two trade-offs. There is one, you're trying to bring more energy and to bring a fresh player on the pitch. But you know, at the same time, that you're going to lose the, 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 the flow and the communication between the players because I would say ideally, you always play with your, your, your same team. So that really means that having the best player available all the time matters more than anything else. That's why I'm thinking about the example of a sub is that you sub someone, you win something because he's going to be fresher, but you lose this, this coordination between players. So back to 
availability and availability comes from the health of the players, of course, you know, this is key to, to performance. So if, if availability is key to performance and health and, and so on, you know, and also the way we tend to, tend to develop players when you see how they get fitter throughout the preseason, it's about just their playing minutes. This is what matters the most into having a player ready. So if you want them to be able to play as many games as you can, because this is, again, part of developing their fitness as well, you want them to be available. So you want them to be healthy. Mm -hmm. So this is so, such a, a center point. And that's why uh, I won't be talking about Kitman all, 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 the, all the talk, but this is why we focus so much on injury side of the things, because you want, again, your player healthy to be able to be available and, and so on. And um, finish on that, playing highly congested, uh, whether it was my time in Paris last year with Lille, we are still playing the Champions League. You play every three, every three days. With a professional team, there's no room to work on, on physical development anyway. You just make sure they just keep, they can cope with the, the rhythm and, and again, remain healthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I totally agree with that. Um, very hard to put a uh, performance pyramid on top of a uh, on top of a uh, shaky foundation where health is not uh, prioritized. Um, yep. How do you how do you if, so if there's, a, there's a saying out there if you, if you want to uh, manage something you've got to measure it first. How do you measure health? Um, is it player availability or is it are there other measures out there that you use? And then how does that then translate? How do how do you measure performance? Um, from there when you're uh, looking at these type models. Yeah, again, you know, and we could also, of course, start by defining performance um, and the KPIs that KPI that you use, whether you're a coach or a performance manager or whatever your role, of course, the ultimate performance, you win, you win or you lose. So that's why, you know, and I think you, you guys all, all know Raymond Verhejan and he's a, he's a big, 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 big mind and he's always been very... I really like the guy because he's a little bit sometimes, um, how do you say that? Sometimes he just like breaks the rules and changes a bit, the uh, challenges the status quo. Mm. But what I got from him is always like, like okay, what is the, the head of performance? And he's always take the piece of, of our roles, our jobs, our titles, because he said, no, you're just in charge of the conditioning, the, the preconditioning. You, you will precondition players to be ready to perform, but the ultimate performance is winning or losing. Mm. So this ultimate performance winning or losing the kpis are somewhere else well the first one are the, the the result of the game and then it's highly tactical technical so back to what we consider in our roles performance would be more the physical side of the things of course the availability is one big one so how many players you have available every week for for, for selection for the for the matches so this is a big big kpi but knowing that you can do the best prevention program, you can have the best monitoring program and you're doing all the things right. If you don't have this ability to connect with the coach that you also manage to not influence, but you have, you're, you're part of the process, the way the players are used, the way they program the load during the week, you can have a lot of injuries anyway. And that might not be really something that you can really always affect or impact on. So it's, it's very difficult to, to, to judge as well the quality of a multi, multi, multidisciplinary team or a performance department, a medical department, if you only look at availability. Because again, the way the coach constructs the session can kind of mess up your, your nice uh, prevention program. So 
having only availability as a KPI for a performance department is not a good reflection of their work. So we have to go probably back to more processes, you know, how things are done. Are you able to implement uh, your program as it should be, as it is a little bit, not evidence-based of course, but at least maybe evidence-informed? Are you able to, to track uh, progresses? Are you able to, I don't know, to, to monitor things and to do the things well? So the KPIs become more linked to, to processes than an actual measurable output uh, because of the reason I just uh, I just mentioned. Um, and that's kind of the thing that I'm trying to to do or to, to discuss with when I'm when I'm consulting with different clubs. It's really back to back to processes. Because of course, KPI, you need something objective. You cannot just say, oh, it looks like the players are, are fit. What is fitness? You know, again, in the context of, of team sport where fitness doesn't always, or not even, doesn't often make the difference, you know. And how do you measure it when you play every three days? So you often you just can't measure fitness and strength. So you have to have the KPI somewhere else. That's that's a bit my, my vision. Mm -hmm. No, I I, um, I totally agree on the misnomer that is um, performance. Like performance is actually what happens in the game. That is uh, the actual performance and our stuff. You could call it non-technical performance, maybe or non non-sporting performance, something like that. But uh, the like the counter movement jump or a beat test or 3015, uh, you know, I mean, the test result from that is an actual sporting performance. It's, it's what goes on in the game. So that really resonated with me, Martin. Um, mm. You mentioned about uh, these these factors and these KPIs, one might be available and, and they might be influenced by how the coach may set up their weeks and how they might train athletes and how they might put things together and, and want things done um, in, in their squads. What uh, some examples, both both good and bad, um, of practical implementation of some of those training principles that would aid with like this health and performance, um, and then, but uh, on the other hand, might also hinder with with health and performance. Other examples. You mean like you're talking about the yeah, proper implementation of of sessions, training contents, this, this kind of thing is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just just basic training principles. How how you put things together, what you think about, um, and and then the and the practical implementation of those. Say if you did have a coach that was right on board with you, you had the influence um, on how players okay. are used, when players are used. Um, how, how would that look for you? I think. Yeah, and that's probably in, at the edge of between the, the 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 evidence, the science, and also practical experience of course it's what is very very important and that's how we work in in football and i'm i'm passionate about that is really about how do we construct uh the micro cycle between between two matches and uh there's a big influence of the so-called uh, tactical periodization for example so this is completely empirical uh but what comes from from this model further on the tactical side of the, side of the thing that again is not really is not my my field uh it's for example the alternation horizontal alternation from a day to another day of the emphasis of almost the day the session and the day so there are days it's way more oriented about neuromuscular constraint that days it's more about uh, more around not developing but at least focusing on metabolic system and so on so it's something that i'm as i said i'm passionate about because it's kind of saying okay because we're playing so much, there's no way we're going to have blocks and training for three weeks and developing for a quality and then another. So this is completely impossible to do. And that's not how people work. But it's more having 
clear focus on some physical capacity on given days. So back to working with uh, with coaches and that's happening every time I've been working with different coaches and so on. Say, say okay, how do we construct the week? When are our heavy days? When are our lights and, and easy days? In our heavy days, which day are we prioritizing something? Then the constraint, the strengths, the nuclear constraint, which are the days it's more metabolic and so on. And putting this puzzle in place. So that's from having this first level of which physical capacity are we more targeting on a day or on another, then becomes, okay, what are the drills on the pitch that match better with this orientation? But that's really the, the tactical side of the things, tactical, technical. But then also, what do we do as a warm-up? What do we do as a pre-session activation? What do we do as a post-session activation that fits within that day? So is that a training principle, I guess, answering to your question? Is it really evidence-based and so on? Not really, even though there's a lot going on behind. Like, you know, why you'd rather do small spaces, kind of strength, two or three days after a match versus doing speed, high-intensity run four days after a match? Because we know now from all the research that, for example, your posterior chains need two or three days to recover. So if you want to go hard on a neuromuscular system, you better go short spaces to limit the speed after three days. So you're still protecting a bit your posterior chain when you're still not completely recovered. And then you move on with the next day having those open spaces and the high speed. So this is kind of the, the, the research behind that, you know. Uh, but the good thing is that as often, those, those great coaches, they figured it out before the research was uh, available. They, they, they understood it already, you know. Um, yeah, that, that's maybe an example if it's answering your question. Mm, yeah, yeah, you bet. Can you give us an example, an actual practical example of what, say, a uh, stock standard seven-day turnaround might look like uh, for you if you if you were um, if you're working with that type of microcycle? Yeah, so let's start from <clears throat> the, 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 when the match is over. That's when the mm. new microcycle starts. Uh, first big question, and actually we, we have some some research on that as, as well that is now available about. When is it best to rest the players? Do you rest them day plus one immediately? And then you restart your new, the rest of the microcycle or, and that's definitely what I prefer. And research has shown that that might be beneficial in terms of, uh, of injuries and soft tissues injuries that happens in the next microcycle is having the day off at day plus two. So the idea behind that is day plus one, that just everyone is back at the club, whether you come back at 4 a.m. or it was a home game or whatever, you, you still make the effort to come back at day plus one. Uh, that's more type of Spanish type of, uh, of approach where this is what they do. Like if you go in England, day plus one, especially if day plus one is a Sunday, there's no way you're going to go back to, to the club and that's your family day. You have to be off. And... But let's say back to my point, um, back to the club day plus one that allows you to really look after the recovery any not even not injury but every every nibbles from uh, you know like a small uh, small thing that happened from the game you, you can treat that so you really look after your your, your starters um and then they, re they rest the day after day plus two and then you start again the, the interest of having back everyone back at the club at day plus one is that all the subs that have not played they don't get their minutes and this is so important to load them so that they get they keep the keep this chronic load then you can train them properly. You can have a proper training session. You can do a gym session. You can do everything. You, so you give them what they need as well. 
So day plus two, everyone needs to recover because those that have played, they're still recovering from the game. Those that did not play, they recover from this hard session, day plus one. And then <clears throat> day plus three, you're back in. You're back in. Uh, and as I said, you're still, for, for the, those who started, you're back in, you're kind of fresh, but you still want to, to, to look after your posterior chain and this kind of thing. So you're back in more with a strength-oriented type of, uh, of, of, um, of session. But again, more small spaces, um, a lot of um, a lot of <clears throat> light eccentric, isometric. So you just put the muscle back in. You work on muscle length. So this is really progressing into already a, a part of a pretty intense session. That's that's the plus three minus four. Then now we're moving to the plus four minus three. This is where now there's still a chance to really work hard and keep on having a conditioning session when we tend to work more on larger spaces, longer pitches, could be more kind of almost sometime an opposition against, could be sometime the, the reserve team or, you know, like you, you work long session, a lot of kilometers, a lot of high speed. And then you're back to already the plus five minus two when you definitely need to drop the load, start to taper and get back to, to, your, to, to, your, to, your, to your game. And the day minus two has always been the day that, the different philosophy always kind of not clashes, clash. But on <clears throat> my experience, my vision is you've done so much day minus four, minus three. You've been in a little bit in all direction with the neuromuscular side and the metabolic side on those two sessions. That I rather cut almost all the constraint on day minus two. It's almost a re an active recovery session, so that day minus one you game prep and and you, and you're back to your game. But like there's a lot of uh, uh, that's maybe more coming from the Portuguese type of school. They like to do still a bit of, a, of, of speed exposure, high speed exposure, but in a very qualitative type of way, because you know, you still have the, the fatigue from those two heavy days. But this is where they kind of still advise to do yeah, those qualitative speed exposure. And on my side, I was always like, yeah, but speed when you get a little bit of fatigue in the leg, that can be dangerous, you know? But if it's the load is well managed, is kind of a priming about speed mm -hmm. for the day that, that happens 48 hours after. Mm -hmm. And again, the cool stuff is that that's also something we looked at with, uh, with Kitman. Um, we, we, we found out that the, those max, close to max speed exposure on day minus one were associated because you'll never be able to have a kind of cause to effect relationship in this kind of thing. But teams doing high speed exposure day minus two had also less hamstring injuries uh, during, during matches two days after, probably linked to this priming effect of having it. So now the question for me is really, how do you manage the load on your minus four, minus three? Because you need to work on those heavy days, but that still allows you to still be able to do those high-speed exposure on day minus two, if you feel that's appropriate given this priming effect and so on. I'm happy to have those max speed exposure on day minus three as well. So you really cut on minus two, for example. But this is where you have this very interesting debate of how you construct your, your, your three days, the minus four, the minus three, minus two. And how do you manage the content and the load of those three days? And uh, as you can tell, that's really something, um, yeah, I think it's, it's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I share that fascination. I share that fascination about how to set up your training weeks and your training cycles and, and whether you have like a... Uh, priming session the day before a, a game or an event or you have nothing in the athlete rest and whether that's based on uh, science or it's based on personal preference for the actual athlete and what they prefer 
whether it's on the morning before the game or uh, the day before, all, all those things. It, it, uh, yeah, it, it, uh, it does fascinate me for sure. And that, that was really interesting, Martin. The, um, I guess the next thing I want to want to ask you about was um, using uh, like data and technology. What what type of uh, a tech do you recommend in, in your space at the moment? Obviously, there'll be things like maybe GPS, accelerometers, things like that. Um, but then not just from a performance side, but for also for a health uh, health side of things as well, and, and analyzing what, what you might be look for, looking for in players. Um, from a health perspective as well? I think, again, you need to be, in, in my, my vision, of course, that's only my, my opinion, you need to be very, very pragmatic every time you talk about the use of technology in the sense that that can quickly go <laughs> all over the place. You know, there's just so much going on. There's so much trackers, uh, bio trackers. Uh, the, there's just so much going on that whatever is your training system and your training monitoring system on one side of the load and the response to load you really make sure, have to make sure that the every time you use technology it's actually ticking one box on one of the other side and if the same technology can help you to tick box on the load and the training to, and the response to load happy days so of course gps is a big one because it, it helps you to track the load and the external load and also i think it, it ticks a it's a big one because it's it's easy you know like now everyone every player doesn't even get but they don't get bothered they just wear it you know so it's an easy one because it's uh but it's it's an easy because it's easy again and i think we have to be careful of not restricting the things that only because they are easy and again if you look at what everyone club every club is doing when they're trying to to use those machine learning models and those injuries several things everyone has gps as, a, as an input more not because it's important but because it's easy so then you have to think, okay, what I really need to better understand uh, if, if, it's, if it's about load. Uh, and again, back to Aaron Kutz, you know, you, you cannot just, and, and Franco, all the stuff they've done, you cannot just have one part of the load. So external is one thing, but you need the internal. So an RPE is so easy that I will, there's always those people saying, yeah, but RPE depends on how the player, okay, fair enough. But it's so easy. Why, why not using it? especially if you, as always, educate a little bit the, the players. So for the load side of the things, GPS, RPE, and heart rate in some context, perfect. Perfect, it's simple, we know what it is, we know the limitation of heart rate, we know heart rate, it's so sometimes so far from the actual VO2 response because of the, the kinetics, and especially when it's intermittent, but we, it, at least it's something, you know? So technology-wise for the load, I, I, I don't think in my context I need, I need more. Where we really need to be a little bit more innovative is to measure the response to load, so the fatigue, the fitness, and the health, because this is where, again, as I said, it can, it can go everywhere. So in terms of tracking health, I think back on being something pragmatic and easy to use, uh, I don't have any relationship with those guys with uh, Ura, the Ura ring, for example, but this is to me close to be a game changer because and whatever you you trust or you believe in the value of heart rate variability, especially in team sports, I don't think it's really meaningful for team sports. But still, you don't have you don't have with a, with this kind of ring, with those those trackers, you don't have only insight into heart rate variability, but you get the, all the the information about sleep, and it's not disruptive anymore. 
Because back in my days, 20 years ago, when trying to, to well, sleep was not even possible in, in an ambulatory context. But for heart rate variability, you had to find the right way, the guys to sit them, to put them the heart rate belt. It was just impossible. Now with those, those, those rings, you don't even realize you're measuring, you're measuring everything. So this is so convenient that it's really worth both the investment and the effort because it's effortless. So that, that's, a, that's a, a, a nice one, you know. Again, technology, what I really like is the, the system, uh, the player maker system, which is those accelerometers that you have attached to the boots. So it gives you the same stat as the typical GPSs, but because the accelerometer is on the boot level, the boots level gives you contact time and these kind of things. And we know uh, that if you're able to do some uh, standardized type of run, always the same speed, you look at the speed the contact time ratio, that has a link with, uh, with fatigue, for example, with acute fatigue. That, that's, a, that's a nice one because again, you just have to wear those boots, those, those accelerometers on the boots, and you almost don't, don't change your practice. You're not even testing the players, but you collect, you know, that, that's all the, the stuff that we talk about, the individual monitoring. Uh, you just have to fit a few standardized run in some of the session, having those stuff on those, uh, those accelerometers and you get information about the neuromuscular status. Same about having a standardized warm-up, uh, four minutes, same speed, you know, heart rate responds to the same uh, intensity, heart rate goes down, it's likely you, you are fitter, heart rate goes up, that might not be as a, as a positive response. Technology, heart rate, you know, simple. But I like those, those approach to, to, to monitor player status because it's not intrusive. Having players perform CMG on the force plate, having a mid-tight pool uh, on the force plate uh, once a week, this is a proper test. So depending on the, 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 the population, the culture, you may be able to do that and that, that's perfect because we know, especially if you look at the, 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 the metrics coming from a force plate, that's pretty powerful, but it's testing. In uh, the European football culture, it's, it's very difficult, very difficult to, to test properly. So everything that can be collected and done through almost normal practices, uh, I like it. So that, that's, that's, that's talking about technology. Yeah, those accelerometers, this ring. And then, uh, of course, which is not directly tech, well, you see, it's technology is tech, is having an, an athlete management system so that all the information is available to everyone, physio and so on. So that, that's also the technology behind that. Uh, so that the information is, uh, is shared and available. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Awesome, awesome. I've got a couple of questions that have just been circling around in my head uh, while you've been talking. The accelerometers on the, or the IMUs on the boots, uh, do you use it? Are they on the athletes every training session, every game? First question, and I've got more, but I'll let you answer that first. Um, ideally, uh, yes, of course. So mm -hmm. I know there are teams in the Premier League, uh, they, they, they wear them as they would wear GPS, they wear the system now. Because mm. again, the system gives you the same metric as the GPS metrics, but all this information. And you also, that's not in the, like in reference to tracking player health and this kind of thing that doesn't really matter, but it gives you another, those accelerometers measure also ball contact. Uh, so you know who's using more the right or the left foot. Intensity of the ball release, short passes, mm. long passes, kicks. So you also get a lot of uh, nice, uh, more technical type of statistics. Um, so for those clubs that use them every day matches, you get this level of, uh, of information as well. The way 
have been using them personally at the moment is more we wear them on the session where we know we're gonna have those standardized run because we use them mainly for for, for this to to measure the non-muscular status but why not you know Mm -hmm. For sure, for sure. And on those standardized runs, and you're measuring autonomic status as well with, with heart rates. How, how often would you um, perform that in a uh, microcycle or in between games or, or over a month? Uh, and and what is your? how do you set that up? Is there a specific speed that you have the athletes run at for the four to five minutes or, or something like that? Um, I'd love to hear more on, on that sort of component. Yeah, again, again, pragmatist, super simple. Like in many, many teams, player when they when they start on the pitch, they start with a with a jog, with a couple of minute jog. So the idea is to keep this routine, but sometimes to start to make it a little bit more standardized, so that the routine is not completely changed, but at least it's measurable and it's consistent. So my experience um, back in my days in uh, in Qatar with uh, the youngest, we're starting at. 10 or 11 kilometers per hour. Um, PSG and most of the clubs I worked or consult with, Lille as well, it's 12. I remember when we started to do that at Carlton back in 2010 as well, they were running at, at 13 or even 14 because those Aussie guys uh, were, were super fit, so they wanted to, to run a bit faster. Doesn't really matter as long as it's a warm-up, a warm-up jog-ish, you know? And then you just have to... Again, if it's a loop on the pitch, like I, we tend to do it in a, we kind of do a eight shape, uh, 50 meters uh, each side of the of, of the eight. So it's a 200 meter loop. Just do twice, twice the, um, twice the loop, and, and and it's done. You know, so pretty pretty, pretty simple. That's for the the submax side of the thing, and more the the heart rate response. <clears throat> and then once this is over. A few, a few, a few warm-up drills, a leg stretch, uh, butt, uh, knee to butt, uh, high knees, two minutes, and then it's kind of on the football pitch. It's from a, one box to the other, so like 70, 75 meters ish runs. Bit of a, you can consider that high speed. That's why you need to, to warm up a little bit, but it's not crazy like 21, 22, three kilometers per hour. So a bit of a of a long, deep run, but those are really about the neuromuscular system. We don't want to have the, the metabolic system uh, engaged. So it's really neuromuscular side. So we have long rests. So it will be 12, 30 seconds for those runs, starting every 45 seconds. So we just yeah, those 30 second rests. So it's so overall, that's a seven minute standardized uh, warm up. That's back to your question. You could do that weekly. A lot of clubs I work with, they, they do that almost weekly. We tend to do it more. Every second week, every three weeks, or sometimes when you feel you need it, or when you can again, because mm -hmm. when you have a mid game uh, mid game week, you just can't do it. Because again, this fits in the day plus four minus three, where you know you're gonna have some high speed during the drills already. So this is just topping up a little bit the 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 the, the high speed and preparing the high speed of the drills so that that fits well with, with this as well. So. Um, and then this is something we use a lot uh, in rehab, in rehab, or players back from, uh, from from break national team. Just a quick checkup: where is are those guys uh, at after the, this break or training interruption? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes perfect sense to me. Makes perfect sense to me, Martin. The um, my next real uh, question I've got swirling around in my head is. 
One, uh, this heart rate response. Um, you obviously look at it during the during the warm up and post warm up. Are there any particular time markers after the warm up that you're really concerned with? And then the second sort of component is that how do you uh, compare your heart rate response in these warm ups to the heart rate variability you might be getting from, say, the aura ring or somebody's using another device? How how do you compare the two? Do you just use one to contextualize the other? Um, what, what's the sort of guidelines you have in and around that space? Yeah, I think it's it's important to understand that uh, the heart rate response to such a submaximal run is really fitness related. It's really cardiovascular fitness, mainly affected as well by your plasma volume, this kind of thing that can be affected as well by temperature or what you've done the previous days. So first of all, it has to be very st well standardized. So I will never do um, a standardized running test after a rest day. Resting day increases your heart rate almost immediately, your baseline heart rate, just because you don't have this, this chronic load and then you have your probably your water retention is down. You have a little bit of a drop in your plasma volume. So it has to be very standardized. Of, but again, this is really a measure, a proxy of cardiovascular fitness. There's no fatigue measure because it's just heart rate, the level of heart rate, last minute of, this, of those four or five minutes run. Then the heart rate variability may share a little bit more with uh, more links with overall fatigue-ish or status, how well you slept, uh, and this kind of stuff. So it's just different information. It's um, the autonomic nervous system assessment through heart rate variability is a mix of uh, billions of things. There might be fatigue, but there's also fitness. There is also what, you, what type of training you are in, training cycle you are in that's all the stuff we were doing with uh, dan plus and and paul when dan was um with the with the rowing uh, in, new, in new zealand where we we were kind of we didn't really expect that you know everyone thinks okay heart rate variability is high happy days heart rate variability is down you're struggling of course if you have a, a shit night of course the heart rate variability will be will be down if you if if you're not feeling well if you get sick of course heart rate variability is down but back to these uh, rowers um, heart, rate was heart rate variability was going up when they were doing this intensive aerobic conditioning, training a lot, high volumes, more uh, first uh, lactate threshold, second, so threshold, like heavy, slow volume, heart rate variability was going up. But as soon as those guys were approaching competition, doing more heat, sub-threshold type of session, heart rate variability was going down and they, they was going in the box as at the point that when they were competing, heart rate was lower than before they starting to train. Same level as when they were detrained. And that's, of course, part of what training does to your body. And when you're doing so much high intensity, you're reducing volume, you're more switching to a sympathetic type of uh, predominance if you really want to be specific about the autonomic system and so on. And this is what you need to compete. So very difficult to link uh, a one day heart rate variability or one week heart rate variability to, to performance or to fitness because it's depending on what you're actually doing. So this is why heart rate variability is so difficult to understand without really understanding the, 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 the context, the training phase, what, what's happening. This is why back to me, I said back to the Ura ring, I think it's, it's more the, 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 the estimation of sleep status and more the learning that you get 
the education you get oh, again i've only slept seven hours i'm training a lot i should get more sleep this is really more the value and heart variability is only used to to infer on sleep stages because as you know heart mm -hmm. every sleep stage has another pattern in terms of heart variability so the heart variability is used more to infer on sleep than actually on uh readiness you know in this case yeah yeah for sure for sure the practical applications of uh of it just inferring sleep and and just being hey uh mate you're uh you are training a lot if you're only getting five six hours sleep maybe there's something we can do about that but to help you if it's practically possible it might not be practically possible with congested max fixtures um and you're flying from one place to another things like that but uh uh, especially if it's uh, if it's uh, longer longer microcycles, whatever you want to say, um, yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. It makes a lot, a lot of sense to me. So you've kind of already touched on how you embed things within your program and, and get the data out of it. Um, I want to swing back to uh, you talked right at the start about the um, having the influence on the coach, and and we talked about your ideal week or your training principles, um, but having this sort of uh, influence on the coach and, and being able to and and the overall organization and be able to sort of help guide and help shape how things might be done um, and that involves a lot about the human interaction side of things um, and obviously that's important but I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on sort of how and why uh, coaches should approach human interactions between other staff and then uh, how do we develop it how do we get better at it you no, know, with with my experience with a coach from a bit every, everywhere in the, in the world, different nationalities, the thing that always matters the most to them is, of course, their player. You know, the first thing they want to know is how are the players and who are they going to be able to train and uh, and put on on the pitch. And um, so, if you want to have this interaction with the coaches, you need to talk about the players. That's what because that, that's what matters to them. And it's funny, like uh, when I started, uh, like, yeah, I worked with three coaches in Paris, two coaches in Lille. And the first discussion I had with them was about, tell me about the players. So this is definitely the, the entry to start to build this interaction with uh, with them. Because, of course, they, they don't care about the, the, the 30, 15 results or their, their, their jumps, you know. So this is probably a mistake that we have all done when we were when we started after our careers and starting with it because we are so focused on what matters to us as performance coaches that we tend to talk about what we are interested in and as for everything the best quality of everyone about talking about human interaction is uh, what we call empathy you know you need to come from the other side you need to understand what those people are are willing to hear and what they are interested in so with coaches, the entry is is player, and uh, for for us again back to what I was just saying about where we're coming from and our the way we are trained and our center of interest, we just have to yeah probably simplify things as well, simplify things and because again having an impact is having an is 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 being able to again to for the for for your message to go across and. Again, we need to make to understand that most of the time, all the stuff that we believe are important to us are not important to the others. Even the player, you know, comes in in the morning, you think he should have slept more, you think he should be doing this, 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 but he doesn't care. 
for him he wants to train he wants to be to have a good moment with uh, with his teammates and it's the same as the coach wants to know about the player the player wants to know about the fun they're going to have at training they don't care about the, the those hours of sleep so it's we still need to get our message across that they should see better they should do their activation and their mobility routines but so we have to find other ways other ways we have to be innovative again and uh, everyone is different everyone has another has other expectations uh, so i'm trying to understand like back to the players is more what their goals are and what are then the the, the path is the, the way what we what are the things we can activate to help them to reach their goals but their their own way their own way so and as you said that's something we, we don't we don't learn at the, the uni that's not in the in the in the heat science course uh, either you know that's not the stuff that that, that we learn and this is uh, based on experience and um and this is why also for example those podcasts and the stuff we're doing with we're doing with with our podcasting with it science is when i interview people i don't ask almost anything about the content it's more about how they manage the content and how they deal with with everything around that in the end almost it's difficult to say that but it always matters more because if you don't have the context and this interaction whatever your your gym activation is top standard or not that won't work you know uh that, that's fascinating but it's a bit scary because i think that we don't again you don't measure you, it's something very very more very more harder harder to to manage definitely mm-hmm. for sure for sure the um like you mentioned empathy and uh, understanding trying to understand what the uh, say coaches or players want and, and once you do that, you'll probably do a much better job, right? You've also um, had a big, uh, I guess, interest area, and you published the book. Um, again, lucky enough to be a contributor to uh, to this around ego um, and practicing as ego. So I wonder if you could just touch on that and how that relates to what, what we were just talking about there, about, about human interactions and, and, I guess, understanding other people's egos and, and how, um, how we can, I guess, all work together for the, for the greater good versus uh versus on the other end of the spectrum yeah no thanks for the for the for the plug for the for, for the book and also yeah thanks for your great contribution um long story short like i've been struggling a lot myself with my own ego so being french as you know french we're always known to be a bit uh, a bit on this side as well so that's why um and uh you know if i really like paint the, the, the pitch of a bit of, a, of an extreme case. Uh, okay, Martin Buscheid, 200 publication, consulting all over the world, like everyone uh, loves me. And then uh, work with a new assistant coach and everything I'm doing is shit and everything I've, I've done is, is hopeless. So how do you take that when you have this background and uh, this, this ego? So that, that starts from, from, from me struggling to accept a level of... of of critics, of critics that I just felt there were there was there was a bit too much to to digest and and eat, and uh, so I started just to call 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 my friends. You know, said how do you how do you manage when someone just disregard everything you want to do and you've done and, but that, that's that's on the really as a practical on the practical side. But same, you 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 write a paper, you spend six six months on the data and writing the stuff. 
and uh, this is rejected by by reviewers that don't have a shit of, don't have a clue of what you've done you get you can get crazy when you get those rejection papers as well so whatever the the the, the side of the sports science and the, the performance it's it's always difficult to accept when rejection overall but anyway so that's that was a big part of, of me and then yeah understanding how people manage themselves and not how they manage those big those big egos because again that's also something pretty funny because i said that that's funny in the end is you see some some people that we work with they just think so much highly about themselves that it's often ridiculous this thing you hear so that that's the funny part so back to the book i just wanted to put everything together about okay guys the 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 ego can be problematic uh because often it just it's, it gets in the way of nice uh, and effective collaboration when people think they know everything or when people disregard the work of others because they think they, are, they, they know it all. So this is definitely a big problem. So again, that's starting with, with the problem I had myself, but what I was just seeing that, especially you want to have the, the perfect idea of a multidisciplinary team, everyone is working together, but in the end, uh, the physio wants to do what he wants on his side and he comments on the starting 11 of the coach. The conditioning coach uh, is just criticizing what the nutritionist is doing. And this is when people just think that they know more than the others. And in the end, the, the multidisciplinary team is just a mess. You know, so there's so many examples of, of, of that. So solutions to that. Um, long story short, uh, we know ego can be problematic in those examples I just gave. Uh, so we have to be aware of the danger of that. But, and the big but of the, of, of, of the book is that ego is needed. Ego is needed because this is such a drive, a drive for improvement, so a drive for, you need to stand out to be able to, in my case, to start to, to, to talk with, uh, with Neymar and Ibrahimovic. If I don't have a little bit of an ego, I would cheat my pen talking to those guys. So I had to, mm -hmm. you have to accept this ego and you have to use it because you need it to improve yourself and to, to do your things. But um, having the ability to, we talk about the, the, the volume of your, of your ego. So again, that's about the terminology where people say you should leave the, the ego at, uh, at the door, these kind of things. No, you just need to have the, 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 the volume control. So when you need it, turn it high. But when you don't need it and you need to listen and collaborate, turn it down. And I think that that's a better view of, of the, let's say, the, the use and the vision of ego. You need it, so have the, the control, the volume control. Leaving it at the door is as if you were leaving a part of you, and uh, that's sometimes that's a bit a bit too much as well. But it's it's, it's awareness awareness of it, mm. and just to finish with this, you know, when you know how to deal with those high egos, you can turn that into your advantage. Because again, you're the you're the, the big player with the big head who who thinks he's the best. You you cannot tell him that he he should do this uh, the gym exercise like that. But then you can use his ego at your own advantage for your own uh, benefit, because you'll be able to just to go through. I don't know. You need to 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 cuddle him a little bit just to give to to tell him what he wants to hear, and two minutes after he's in the gym on his foam roll, doing what you wanted. So it's even easier sometimes when you have those, those big egos because as soon as you find the, the entry and the key, they do whatever you want. You know. So it's again back to what we were saying about about the empathy part of the thing is more really understanding what triggers the ego on one side of the other, what triggers the, the 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 bad side of the ego is too loud, but what also 
can be beneficial when you use the ego at, at your advantage. So um, again, fascinating uh, topic. <laughs> yeah. Mm, yeah, you bet, you bet. I, I found it really interesting just the, even like uh, understanding where the word had come from. Like, and I'm probably going to misquote this, but to my knowledge, it's it's like a Greek word that means self. So it's just the understanding of self and uh, and uh, how it's been uh, changed and modified in the English language to uh, have uh, negative connotations, I guess. Um, where, as you say, it's 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 not necessarily a bad thing, but it's something that uh, you need to understand and and uh, improve. And I also want to make him a remark on that rejection uh, item you said. Yeah, I, I and, and it's uh, probably got significance to our discussion on heart rate variability. I've had papers on heart rate variability that have uh, probably rejected upwards of like seven seven times, eight times until they found a home. Um, Showing a similar thing to what Dan Plews showed with the uh, with the rowers, um, and if, if you didn't have an ego about it, um, you'd probably just go, "Ah, I'm not going to bother with it. Uh, I'm exactly. done." I'm, uh, you know what I mean? Um, so yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, definitely a driver for improvement. Definitely a driver for improvement. Uh, yes, Martin. It, so much interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. I want to now get down into some of the bit of nitty gritty, and this is kind of stemming from some conversations. Uh, we had recently with a uh, mutual uh, mutual friend and, and uh, colleague, Nick Paulos. Um, but I want to I want to ask you, and this is quite a um, hot topic, I guess, in the conditioning world right now. The combination of uh, an anaerobic speed uh, reserve, um, maximal sprinting speed, and then also maximal aerobic speed. How do you um, how do you test this yourself? currently how do you use this yourself practically um uh with, with the teams you're working with now and uh what what do you use and, and how do you set it up yeah so of course but i think with with time i also um, i think look, i mean again i've been pronouncing this word many times about the pragmatic side of the things um what's important with the arabic speed reserve concept is not always to have the exact numbers, but to understand the profiling that comes with it. So you always have those, those, those four options. You know, you have the fit guy, the fit and fast, the fit and slow, the less fit and slow, and the less fit and fast. Four, four options. So you have the, the, this quadrant. And this is where things start uh, putting players in those four buckets. So the less fit and slow. Hopefully, you don't even have this player on the on, on the team because it's going to be difficult for him. But at least you have the three other profile, you know. So you have the the less fit and fast. That's your typical striker or your central defender. They are very important because they are fast and they make the difference. So that's Mbappe style, if you want, you know. So uh, those guys, they really they have a specific profile, you know, because they have. So back to why you need to profile maybe before we can back to those profile um, with the, 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 the fitness you understand, I mean, sorry, with both, you really understand the morphotype and in terms of uh, fiber distributions roughly. So back to my, my profile and the less fit, but fast guy, it's heavily type one uh, type, uh, type two types of uh, fibers. On the other side of the spectrum, the spectrum you have the fit but slow guy. He's mainly type one, and then the the fit and fast. He has a more intermediate fibers and a bit of bit of both. And this is ideally the hybrid profile. That's the best profile for team sports because he has the speed and he has the endurance to have the ability to repeat and and so on. 
So having an understanding of where those three players uh, fit in which buckets is very important because you know that the fit guy, the, the fast guy, will definitely struggle just with overall load. It's not the type of player that will cope well with uh, two sessions a day, for example. Lo siento. Um, Lo for on the other side, the, the endurance guy type of profile that is fit but slow, he can cope training a lot, high volumes and, and so on. So that's at the macro level is what you can expect if you, again, I said, uh, train a lot or not, these kind of things. And then more at the micro, micro level, it's what are the type of work that those players are better suited to. And if I take, obviously, the example of high-intensity tra training, for example, on one side, the endurance type of profile, they will be better suited to do more long intervals, one minute, two minutes, three minutes, they, they, they can do, they can go in the wood and, and have, a, have a jog. While the, the speed profile guys, you, you train them high intensity through repeated sprints, very short intervals that kind of goes with, with their profile. So once you have them in the buckets, that's the application about what you give them and how you manage load and content. And this is the more important bucketing them. Now, how do you create those buckets? Uh, if you have maximal sprinting speed and maximal aerobic speed, you're doing that from the book because this is how come this is where comes the the, the because those those two speeds are the locomotor speed that really represents those kind of metabolic and neuromuscular entities. So that's really the basic. I said you do that as in the book, but to be honest, if for any reason in your club context you are not doing those two tests, but you have a measure of explosive strength or even maximal jumping velocity takeoff or whatever that helps you to put them on one side or the other of the quadrant. I think that that's a nice start. Then for the metabolic endurance of the things, if you do a 30-15 or a yo-yo or a two times, two, two K time trials, you still manage to put them on the other side of, of the quadrant so for the other axis. And that works enough for me because the bucketing is the most important. Mm -hmm. Then the test you use, it's more what are you going to do in terms of prescription? What are you going to do in terms of, I don't know, if you use GPS and you want to individualize your, your speed zones, then it's nice to have a maximal speed, to have a, either a, a 30-15 or a maximal average speed because you might use those thresholds for to define your, your zone to define your thresholds. Prescription, you don't prescribe with a contour movement jump. You don't prescribe with a yo-yo, but you can prescribe with a maximum big speed or, or with a with a 30-15. So this is where it, where it comes down, the choice of, of the test. And I think you have to be very versatile and not fixed to a test or another. Uh, I'm not like, of course, 30-15, uh, of course, like I would say, that's the that's the test we, we, we should use, but fine, you know. I'm, I think it's more what we do with it. And as long as you manage to individualize your running distance when you have your guys doing intervals, it's fine. What do you use? Of course, it's better to me in my mind with my experience to use the 3015, but I'm, I'm, I'm relaxed with that as long as you get to your final point, which is bucketing, individualizing distances, and so on. What, what, what do you use uh, currently at Lil? Do you use um, like do you do something like a forty meter or thirty meter sprint test, or do you just get their maximal velocity from the GPS and games for your maximal sprinting speed? Um, and then do you do a combination of 
um, say, metabolic tests, the 3015 and the 2K time trial, or is it just one or the other? Well, speed, of course, through GPS, uh, it might be max speed reach over games, but also max speed during proper speed session when we just throw them on, on, on long sprints. So we get an idea of what's maximal sprinting speed through different means using the GPS. And that, that, that's enough because now we can trust enough the technology as well. It's precise enough. So that, that's okay. Uh, then on the other side, uh, 3015. 3015 is fine. So again, with a 3015 and uh, a maximal sprinting speed test, you are not able to truly measure your anaerobic speed reserve because the concept is with maximal aerobic speed, which should be from either an incremental test or a, two, a 2K time trial. Fair enough. But again, doesn't really matter in my case because I'm happy to have the 3015 because, of course, I, I know so much the, the, the values and I'm so comfortable with the data that's, that matters more. I can use that to group the player for the conditioning side of the things. And then I can still use that for, my, for the buckets. So even though I'm not take, doing that as in the book, it, it still, I still get to, to, to my point. Um, then if we wanted to have a proper maximal aerobic speed as well, I would definitely do more a 2K time trial than another incremental test. Because like for players, they will look like they're doing twice an incremental test and that doesn't really matter. So a lot of the AFL clubs I was uh, working with as well back in those days with, uh, with Nick in Adelaide and... Uh, um, and now what he's been doing again, again with the, the Giants, I think having 3015 and 2K is a nice way to profile further the players without repeating the same type of test. I think that that works pretty well. And also that what gives you as well the combination of maximal sprinting speed, 3015, uh, MIS, is that you can also work on the differences where sits the 3015 in between the two. Because normally, in, in theory, and actually, actually, there's something that we kind of shown with the mathematic modeling with Christian Vassalo, is that with all the models, you enter maximal aerobic speed, maximal sprinting speed in the model, and you can predict your 3015 based on the reserve and, and the model. So it really shows and that's really why that, that's the interest of the 3015, that the 3015 is a direct reflection of your reserve so two players with the same maximum aerobic speed the faster of both will go faster on the 3015 as well because it gets more reserve so that, that's the, the interest of the 3015 but still that gives you maybe something more pragmatic to show players that hey look guys those two guys have the same maximum aerobic speed but this one has a higher 3015 that really talks to players that if one has two kilometer and the other one has three kilometers more during the 3015 than during maximal average speed, that he has a better profile for high intensity running during games. That's mm. definitely more straightforward for a player that's showing him mathematical equation about what could be his high intensity performance or high intensity tolerance because of his reserve. So maybe mm. as an educational side of the things, it's pretty, it's pretty nice as well to, to, again, to understand players, for players to understand uh, where they sit and what is their performance capacity, for example. For sure, for sure. Um, so I've got a question on that. I've got a question on that. The, the question is, you've got these different buckets of players. Then how do you fit that into your tactical periodization where you say, okay, now we have our hybrid, we have our endurance, we have our speed um, profiles. Um, is, is it only in the non-technical conditioning when they are not uh, 
um, involved in, say, games or things like that? Or do you also incorporate those same principles into things like your small-sided games, work on the pitch that's really common in a sort of tactical periodization framework? I think it's, yeah, no, definitely. It's essentially on the, the overall load aspect of things. So especially the, the speed profile, the pure explosive player, sometimes if it's a, a heavy day or a heavy session, maybe the guy we might tend to, to drop. So, okay, maybe the last 20 minutes, don't, we just take him out because we, we know his fatigue resistance is lower and uh, we just don't want to over, over, not over train, but over, overwork him. So de de definitely, definitely. Same for extra session, individual work that is happening after the group session. Depending on the profile, we might say, okay, let's do it. Or maybe not today because of his profile. Mm -hmm. to manage the overall the overload the exposure to the overload and, and do you find that makes a lot of sense to me do you find also that uh your profiles fit into um uh, certain position groups is it is it uh, uh, uh pretty common that your strikers are more speed midfielders more endurance and they sort of sort themselves out so when all the strikers go off to work on one drill that kind of takes care of that profile themselves. When all the midfielders go off the work on one drill, that kind of takes care of that um, that type concept in and of itself. Yes, yeah, it's 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 impressive how, yeah, like I could give you uh, a spreadsheet about with uh, thirty players and just their physical profile. I will let you do put them in in three buckets, and you will have uh, three positions in these buckets. It's incredible. It's it's mm. part of the the self the self selection at the highest level is that mm. to be to be a, a successful striker you you have such the need for speed that you you have to be a, a speed profile and to be a good uh, fullback you have to have a mix and a hybrid profile otherwise you don't last as a fullback and so on so it's it's incredibly straightforward, but it's true. It makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, it's interesting. It's really interesting. Um, and my last little question that I that I had in the back of mind is something Nick I've, and I have discussed as well. Is that do you've got these two uh, tests, um, like metabolic tests or uh, measures of maximal aerobic speed? One, your two K time trial, and then to your thirty fifteen, which which will give estimation. Do you use them in different ways for your prescription of uh, intervals. Uh, for instance, I've heard of people using um, shorter intervals below one minute based off the 3015 and longer intervals above one minute in duration based off uh, uh, your 2K time trial. What, what do you do in that space? Um, yes, if you have the luxury to have those uh, two tests, uh, definitely. Because like the, the 3015 is really designed for supra maximal types of intervals, so short, less than less than a minute interval for sure. Um, and the closer you get to maximal aerobic speed, or even if you run those intervals below maximal aerobic speed, that's too far from the 3015 now. Mm. And what matters more is not your reserve and the anaerobic side of the things and the, the speed, what matters more in is more your, your endurance, your base. So if you have maximum speed for those lower, longer, lower intensity, longer intervals, that makes definitely more, more sense. 
So if you have both tests, that's exactly the way the way to go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes a lot of sense to me. Um, Martin, awesome discussion. Autumn, awesome discussion. My mind's just been going like dum 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 the whole time. It's been uh, it's been really good. Hey, I want to I want to finish up just just quickly uh, with some uh, like rapid fire questions and quick fire questions. Uh, some of these we might have already answered a bit, but uh, you can elaborate on these. You can uh, take your time with them, or you can uh, get rid of them really quickly with uh, um, short, sweet answers. Up to you. Um, first one. What's been your big sort of aha moment? Um, maybe you've spoken to a, a colleague or you've been at a conference or you, you've done something yourself with, with research uh, and you've just, and that's been your, your thing that we've, the light bulb's gone off in your brain and you've gone, aha. What, what, what's been that one for you? Well, I think I have a moment every day. So that's a, that's a, no. <sighs> Not aha, but I, that's something I, I, I often bring back to when people ask me about, about myself or I don't like to say that, my, my career and these kind of things. You know, I always, I often mention uh, 2007, my first visit to, to Australia when I went to do a, a kind of a postdoc. That was three years after my PhD, but I managed to escape from the uni in France. To, I was not teaching for six months. And I went to ECU. In, in Perth to meet Paul Lawson and uh, and I just discovered uh, let's say Australia Australia and the way the the country was embracing sports sports science living with uh, Mark uh, Quad on um, on Scarborough Beach uh, going for a surf in the morning cycling to cycling to work at at 6 a.m. you know those kind of things and seeing the all the people I worked with uh, there. Uh, I just I just don't want to, to spend five minutes just citing all the, the great minds that were at ECU at this time. That definitely changed my my vision of what I wanted to do in the space with uh, those uh, those couple of months. Uh, so it's not a hard moment, but it's a game changer in what I wanted to do. I would say with mm. uh, yeah the, everything yeah. Mm-hmm. Very good, very good. Um, Next, uh, next um, question. What uh, what's the best performance you've ever seen from an athlete that springs to mind in training? A performance during training. <clears throat> um, back to my days when I was trying to be a professional handball player. Um, so training with uh, Christian uh, Thierry Thierry Omeyer, goalkeeper coach of goalkeeper sorry Thierry Omeyer, goalkeeper of the French national team at this time uh, I was 16 he was 17 uh, did not conceive a single goal during um, at least one or two training consecutively while normally uh, like you, you always take one or two goals right? and uh, he was only 17 or 18 and uh, he became the best goalkeeper in, in the world in the history um, and that, that was not surprising but imagine but I, I guess I mean for the Australian uh, audience I don't think we really understand what I when I talk about handball uh, but it's like as if you were you're playing basketball but you don't even you don't make one point you know it's just impossible normally it always happens you know there is always mm. so um, like performance during training it's not again performance in terms of lifting or jumping 
But this is just incredible to believe that the guy did not conceive a single goal. Mm-hmm. Well, what's a typical score on a handball game? 35 goals in an hour. 13. Mm-hmm. So have two, two, mm-hmm. goals, two, goals, two goals a minute. One goal a minute. Yeah, wow. 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 Man, Martin. Hey, awesome discussion. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, we've talked about the ego, but we talked about hit science. Um, Kipman as well. How do people, I know also you've got a wonderful website there people can go to. How do people get more information about what you have going on? Um, yeah, you said on, on the website, I kind of, every time there is something new coming up on the research side, I put it on the website. So that's probably the, the, the best uh, resource where, where almost everything is, is available. Uh, and then, yeah, social medias. Um, tweeting more science kind of the things. Instagram is more a bit personal uh, insights, still work-ish oriented and, uh, and sunsets. But yeah, that's where I try to be a little bit uh, to open what I'm doing. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. What, what's your uh, handle on Twitter for the listeners? Um, M-A-R-T, like a Mart, and then one, the number, and then B-U-C-H uh on both on both uh, platform yeah nice nice well um for everybody out there highly encourage you to uh jump onto martin's website and social media and check out the, the hit science stuff the uh ego book as well very highly recommended uh, martin absolute pleasure like i said having you on uh thank you so much but it's been my pleasure thanks for for having me on the on the on, on the show and uh yeah great great to chat though thanks thanks again thank you and take care Alright, alright, before we conclude this episode, I want to make mention of our sponsors, Val Performance once again. As mentioned, they make the Nordboard Force Frame, Human Track, Force Decks, also Smart Speed, Smart Jump are part of their stable of products now. Some great products here. They're also great supporters of the ACA and this podcast. If you are interested in any of their products, please check them out, valperformance.com, or they're on the socials at Val underscore performance on Instagram and at Val Performance on Twitter. So That's another podcast done and dusted. And until our next episode, I'm Joseph Coyne, and this is the ASA Podcast.